Hi guys, today we have a very special guest interview with Amanda Sun, the co-founder and executive director of green to go um, which is a national nonprofit that aims to accelerate the transition to a sustainable zero waste society. So before we get started with the interview, I wanted for my audience to get to know you better. So let's start with a small icebreaker, which I think is kind of appropriately named. Um, so if you could have coffee with any historical figure, who would you choose? I would say, honestly, my great-grandmother, being very liberal with the word of historical figure. And I would say my great-grandmother because I did not know her very long before she passed, but she was a pretty important figure in raising me in those years where you don't really have memories and you're still like forming your brain. And I would say so because I would like to hear actually what her perspective on China and the environment was like back then before um, China industrialized. And also her experiences as a woman, um, having gone through like foot binding and a lot of like pretty sexist, archaic um, practices that are now extinct, to hear about those experiences would be very interesting. Yeah, that, that is really interesting. And uh, I think to hear about those experiences firsthand would be an amazing thing to learn about. Um, okay, so on with the show. Amanda, can you tell us more about your environmental past as a whole and how it led you to wanting to start green to go Yeah, for sure. It's definitely been a journey. I would say that I've been interested in environmental issues and the idea of just conservation, both conserving the plants and animals and species around you and like insects and bugs um, that you see on like a walk around your neighborhood um, to conservation of like resources you're using. I've been interested in this since even elementary school or before that. Um, I remember actually like my, when I was like five or six drawing like solar powered cars and like trying to design them or I designing my ideal city um, on like paper. And I became like more, I would say like putting my, my beliefs into action in high school when I was president of the green team at my high school, which was like the environmental club. Um, and we did gardening. We picked up trash. We put like posters to raise awareness. We had like week weekly meetings on like, what is zero waste? What are these topics? Um, and I also founded with a friend, the bike club at my high school because I was very personally just into biking um, as a form of commute, but also recognizing that it's like a very great way to reduce your impact on the planet. So trying to do both with that club. And in high school, I would say in general, my actions were very individualistic. I focused more on like, you know, how can we get my, how can I get my friends to bike? Like I remember trying to convince my friends and I got them to like bike for a week or two and then they quit and went back to like driving to school. Um, how can, maybe even five people pick up trash. Like how can we convince people to not throw away things? And there was a big turning point in college because I was introduced to the idea of like divest, like divestment from fossil fuel companies. Um, are you familiar with that idea? Um, not really, can you talk more about that? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, it was completely new to me as well when I first arrived. And basically when you go to universities, private, universities are businesses they're run like businesses and 
they might be labeled as nonprofit, but they're totally in it for the money, you know? So they actually have like endowments. Like if you think about um, Harvard having like the biggest endowment um, among like all the private schools in the US. And I believe it like rivals the GDP of like some countries, right? Or like Dartmouth having a huge endowment. And what do they do with this endowment? They're not like having the money sit in their bank. They're actually investing it into companies, kind of like a stock. You know, like just like how our parents or we might like invest in a company, like you can buy Zoom stock um, and then sell it later on. They're doing something similar and they have like teams of people managing this. I believe um, Yale's Yale University had like one of the pioneering like hedge fund brokers who really started pioneering this idea of investing stock um, or sorry, investing endowments like stock and investing very aggressively to grow the university's like funds. and part of the investments they make is in fossil fuel companies. So they work, they're, they're basically supporting fossil fuel companies with their money and in turn, actually with students' money, right? With our tuition. So the idea of divest, divest is basically a national movement, international movement um, for students to convince their college to stop investing in fossil fuels. So Recently, there's been like a lot of success in that, like Harvard divested, Dartmouth divested, a lot of schools actually have divested, um, but definitely more work needs to be done. Um, but this idea of like divestment was like one of the first glimpses I had of how it's not individual action that makes a big difference, but rather systemic action. Does my explanation of divestment make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I get it. Okay. Um, so. The idea of individual action versus systemic action, um, how did this lead to working with zero waste and starting green to go Yeah, for sure. So when I started to see that it's more about our systems, um, I became interested in working on this um, at multiple levels. So I now had like the environmental club at Dartmouth and we're trying to work on basically getting the outing club and our housing communities to be more like sustainable. For example, um, there's tons of free merch, like tons of free shirts, hats, whatever, um, associated with like housing groups on campus. And they used to buy just like conventional cotton. And instead we just like talked to people buying the shirts and told them, hey, do you want to buy from this t-shirt company that certifies their shirts with like global organic textile standards? So it's a certification that like is pretty rigorous and companies need to meet um, by examining like how their farmers do their practices and whether they're like fair trade or not. Um, so that's an example of a systemic solution. And another one that I was really inspired by that Dartmouth already had was um, in our dining halls. Often like college students get takeout because they're busy, you know, they go to class and they eat there, not anymore, but they go to like club meetings, they eat somewhere else. And um, in the pandemic, of course, that number has increased. Some colleges make it so like students have to eat in their dorms for the first two weeks while they're quarantining and getting tested. And Dartmouth has this program that exists at many other schools independently started, um, where instead of getting like a single use plastic container, you're getting a reusable one. And then you can bring your food home in the reusable container. And next time when you go back to the dining hall, you can exchange that container for a token. So just something representing the fact that you can get another container. For us and many schools, it's a carabiner. And this program um, is basically the Green to Go program. 
Um, but every time a student has to start this program at their school, it's very a long process. So it takes them sometimes like two years. And I realized that the process of starting it at every school was exactly the same. Like they all had to talk to other schools. They all had to find different models of containers. It was just a ton of time that didn't need to be spent. So the idea of green to go when I started it was to provide like a very scalable way to make impact on other college campuses and help other students start this program at their school. So instead of just working on my campus, we're working together as a national team to mitigate like 16 million containers, single use plastic containers per year. And we've had pretty good success. We're currently working with 25 schools. That's where I got the number from. And based on that number, that's how many like containers we've mitigate. Um, and we're also having like pretty good luck. Some schools are about to convert or start their pilot. That's really amazing. And so the idea of, use, of reusing the plastic containers ties into zero waste and the whole um, and systemic action to create a long lasting change. So how so specifically, how can zero waste as a whole achieve long term sustainability goals worldwide? For sure, like the movement of zero waste. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's definitely a great question. I would say that it is a combination of like businesses and governmental support. So to give you an example, Green to Go is kind of similar to some startups that work on zero waste in restaurants. So it's the same idea of like using a reusable container, bringing it back to the restaurant. And these companies often have a much easier time launching in places that have like bans against single use plastic, like plastic bag bans and similar items because the taxes actually from those bans can go to helping those companies or just like making it so there's room for this company to exist. Um, and I would say it also involves like the cooperation of really big companies because like HP, for example, um, does also like printers, right? They also do like software and their printers make a ton of waste, just like many other big companies. Um, but I know for a fact that they're currently working on making the printer ink like zero waste. So you get your printer ink and then it comes with a little um, prepaid package that you can put the ink cartridge in and give it back to HP and they'll like recycle the cartridge and turn like the metal, they'll resell the metal and then they'll melt the plastic into a new cartridge. Um, I think that's great. So that's like recycling, but Ultimately, what we need beyond recycling is complete reuse. So we need those companies like HP and others to start doing a completely reusable model, similar to like, have you ever done, um, have you ever gone to like the store and gotten like a milk bottle, but it's in glass? Yeah. Yeah, and then you like return the glass bottle once you're done, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we need that kind of model for basically everything that exists in the world that's single use and why we need it instead of recycling is one recycling doesn't work it's like a ploy by fossil fuel companies to make people like you know more comfortable using plastic um and also yeah recycling doesn't work like it's great for some products such as aluminum but it's actually carbon neg carbon positive for glass um and it just doesn't work for a lot of plastic so that's why we need to have like a fully 
reusable circular economy model if we're going to switch everyone to like zero waste. So speaking of how um, zero waste projects need to be implemented worldwide, how can they be implemented specifically within homes or local villages um, instead of focusing on schools or um, companies? Mm, um, Yeah, for sure. I would say for homes and local villages or cities, um, that definitely depends a lot on like local laws and governmental laws. For example, um, right now at home, we have like a compost container, right? And that was mandated by the city of Palo Alto um, and also the city of Sunnyvale. So that puts that container in everyone's homes and also again, provides like a system of where all that food waste is going by a pickup truck to wherever the food waste is processed. And it's not like relying on each family doing that thing. Um, I think it's also cool to see like more zero waste shops pop up in cities where you can, you know, your parents or whoever's cooking in the house can go there with their like reusable containers and buy bulk grains or buy um, anything they need without packaging. I think that's also something we should definitely support. That's. That's very um, true. I've seen a, a lot of rise with the with zero waste companies um, around where I live, and then on social media, there's a lot of uh, online stores that'll were willing to send it to you, and then you can mail it back. So, with these companies and consumers buying them, how can individuals incorporate zero waste into their lives? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess they could honestly listen to your podcast and <laughs> learn more about those types of companies that, you know, you can buy soap from and they ship it in like a zero waste container. Um, Just look up, honestly, like use Google, look up zero waste shops near me, look up um, zero waste toothpaste or zero waste soap. You can find a lot of things online that come in like no packaging at all, even for like lip balm. Um, It's like just a stick. And yeah, I would like look in, just like look into it, honestly. And Um, Also know that it's okay that not everything you do can be zero waste. Like for example, I had some boba today and yes, they use like a straw that was compostable, but the whole boba container itself was plastic. And I think that is something that you have to be like maybe okay with, but know that you're still making like strides toward becoming more zero waste. Yeah, so it's it's definitely more important to focus, I think, on a holistic action and individualistic action because um, the more people that collect together, the more impact you can have, right? So yeah. how has zero waste had an impact on communities as a whole, like on human health or industrial systems and climate change overall to this day? Yeah, for sure. It has huge impacts. I think right now when people talk about climate change, they often use the word carbon or carbon negative, carbon neutral. But really, that's only like one way of measuring the impact we have on our planet. And like the pollution crisis is labeled by the United Nations as like one of the three planetary crises we have, right? There's biodiversity, there's climate change slash like carbon and gases gases in the air, and there's also pollution. And I think the reason that is one of the big emergencies right now is because um, pollution has so many negative health effects on our on our populations, on our communities, on our families, on our friends. Um, there's actually one study that showed humans consume 
about one credit card worth of microplastic each week just from the food we're eating in our like food chain like the fish that are exposed to plastic and microplastics from the clothing we're washing that's made out of polyester um also tons of communities that i'm lucky to currently live in palo alto one of like you know the richest zip codes in the world but um a couple like blocks down is east palo alto which suffers from like lead poisoning and tons of pollution and also landfills are buried there so there's a lot of like negative health effects of our currently not zero waste society um but yeah there's lots of stuff we can do so i don't think i worry too much about the consequences so um speaking of the consequences and implementing zero waste how have various other countries and their jurisdictions been able to implement zero waste so far and how can zero waste be implemented um, in our legal systems mm-hmm. um, i would say again more laws that um, i think fall into two categories so one side is you have like positive reinforcement and the other is you have negative reinforcement so bans against plastic bags would be a negative reinforcement because if you don't have a bag, they charge you 10 cents. It is very effective. Um, but on the other side, you have positive reinforcements, such as, you know, if your company is carbon neutral or carbon negative, you get certain like tax benefits. And it could be the same on like a household level as well. And they're connected because um, some companies, when they're measuring carbon neutrality and carbon negativity, they're factoring in the fact that most employees now are working from home. So how do you calculate you know, your employees' carbon footprint at their house with their air conditioning and their refrigerators and add that to your company's like carbon portfolio? So those two are definitely connected. And again, going back to your question about like laws, um, making sure there's positive incentives for those companies to do that and for like communities to do that. So going back from holistic to individual, um, how have you personally implemented zero waste in your own life? How have you made it sustainable for you? And is it possible for zero waste to be a sustainable practice for um, lower income households or less fortunate households? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say for me, like using a water bottle, have one right here, small things like that. Um, sometimes I have like reusable chopsticks that like also fit into, like they squeeze into each other. So takes up less space. Um, In general though, again, I don't focus too much actually on my own individual impact, partially because I used to, again, care a lot about biking. And I realized that, you know, sometimes it's important to drive. Like if I wanna be able to help my friends, I need to maybe drive for them to help them move or drive them to school. Um, So in the same vein, I try not to focus too much on my individual actions, especially knowing that I'm spending a large portion of my time on green to go and other initiatives that make a much bigger impact. Um, And then to answer your second part of the question for like, is it feasible for low income families and those on the front lines? Um, I believe it is, but I think especially for those communities, we should not be foisting the idea of like, individual zero waste and like them buying their own reusable chopsticks or something. Instead, we need to make it so zero waste is the obvious and more sustainable and economically beneficial solution for them. Um, And I believe zero waste um, is the answer to a lot of environmental poverty. 
like I mentioned before, with landfills and a lot of environmental negative health effects like cancer happening because there's a lot of pollution in those poor income areas, literally like cities deciding to put the dump site in poorer areas. Um, so if we had zero waste, obviously there wouldn't be dump sites, there'd be less health effects for those communities, but also it's cheaper because if you don't have to buy like plastic containers or anything for, you know, your groceries, it's less for a family to just purchase. Like there's less things that they have to buy because it's already provided in the system for them, if that makes sense. Yeah, like um, uh, there's the, the idea that because poor families can say they can afford a 50, a $50, um, not 50, let's say 10, $15 a, a pair of shoes, right? But because those shoes are poor quality and not sustainably made and not well-made, they're most likely made by fast fashion companies. Um, they could wear it for a month or two before they wear down and they would have to buy another pair. Whereas um, if, <laughs> if it was more sustainable and reusable, then it would be economically beneficial for their families because they wouldn't have to continuously buy over and over again to um, support themselves, right? So I love that point because um, along with like a zero waste system, we might have like cobblers and people who could repair those shoes, even if they were like fast fashion shoes, so they could last longer. But because so many companies and like our whole system right now is throwaway, like, you know, lots of those small businesses and cobblers and tailors can't make ends meet and, you know, stop doing that type of work. So there isn't even a way to like repair your shoes. Um, yeah, for sure. Okay. And um, so with the idea of cobblers and tailors, over time, the idea of mending your own stuff and fixing your own stuff has kind of gone out of style, I don't want to say, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. So how has zero waste evolved over the years and how have present day solutions come into focus over time? Yeah, I love that unintentional pun you made with out of style, it's funny. <laughs> um, if, when you look at zero waste as a movement um, as a whole, I would say it's similar to how we're striving for like a circular economy. The movement itself over history has been circular because, you know, like I think you touched on um, 100 years ago, we all used milk bottles and a milkman would come to our house, drop off the milk, and the next day we would like leave the empty bottles out. Um, and I know like culturally for me and my family who lives in China um, and my mom who grew up in like the pre-industrialized China, everything was zero waste. Like um, also all their jackets, like they stuffed cotton in them instead of like using down or some kind of polyester in the winter. So you had that, which is basically right now what we're striving for again. So between those two periods of a hundred years ago or older and now, we had, of course, like like you were saying, fast fashion, the rise of single-use plastics, et cetera. Um, but I think right now we're trying to go back in a way to that type of day where everything was reusable. Um, and more than that, we're trying to do it in an era where people want convenience. Um, but also there's a lot more opportunities for like venture capitalists who fund zero waste companies and people who are a lot more environmentally conscious. So we have that advantage right now in the movement that people care about this um, and that there is slowly with Green Go and other companies, there's like more momentum 
towards zero waste. I love that. Um, that's perfect. We're getting to the end of the episode, so I have a few last questions. So what are three movies um, you'd recommend to my audience and why? All right, um, that's a great question. I would recommend the first movie being Dema. It's D-E-M-A-I-N. It's French for tomorrow. The movie is by a French company, but they have subtitles in English. And the reason I recommend it is because it focuses a lot on the positive solutions and things people are doing already right now in the climate movement that have been very successful. So it focuses on like tomorrow, basically, what's happening tomorrow. Um, and I like this because I feel like for your audience, obviously everyone listening to this is probably very environmentally literate, like they're on it, you know, we're all, we're not like boomers, we're ready to help. So. I think a lot of environmental films and media that focus on the problem or educating people about the problem is actually like not what we need to listen to. It's like depressing, it's pretty boring, where do you know all this stuff? So I highly recommend Demand because it focuses on solutions. Um, in a similar vein, this isn't a movie, but I recommend a book called Drawdown. It also focuses on solutions and more specifically, it ranks the solutions by how much carbon it sequesters. So up high, you have um, solar voltaics, you have wind power, you also have like health and education, um, like women's empowerment. So solutions that can help climate change. And I like how they rank them because there's a lot of things we could do, but it's important to focus on the most effective ones. Um, another movie I'd recommend, it's not a specific one, but I would recommend something related to like the food industry in the United States. Um, it could convince you to become vegetarian or vegan, which is one of the top ways to like benefit the planet. Um, and also I think it's a very important thing to realize where our food and what our bodies are made of, um, where that nutrient is coming from. Um, and there's, in my opinion, factory farming is one of the worst atrocities that's happening right now in the world. Um, the factory farming that's happening in the United States. So yeah, I gave you two movies and a book, but hopefully that is okay. And I think the book might be having a movie out soon anyways. <laughs> Perfect, that totally works. Um, yeah, I think I actually watched a documentary recently about factory farming and um, I, it was specifically about the production of milk. Um, hmm. the cows. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I forget the name of it, but I know it's on Netflix. So mm. I'll, nice. <laughs> I'll let you know. Um, and my final, question so what are some of your and your um and your nonprofits zero waste intentions for the rest of the 2022 year i love this and i have a question for you at the end of this as well <laughs> um our goals are one expand to 80 more universities and all of the states in the u.s we are very close to to reaching all the states in the US, but by the end of 2022, we would like to have a hundred universities or schools that we're working with. It does not need to be a college. We are also expanding high, expanding to high schools. So my second goal would be to establish high school chapters. And if any of your listeners are interested, um, I'm sure I'll give you some links and you can include them in the podcast description of ways you could join us. Uh, we're especially looking for social media. Um, from high schoolers, but also anyone interested in starting like a zero waste chapter at their school and doesn't need to be a formal chapter. And we provide a lot of resources for that. So that's our second goal, start high school chapters. Our third goal is to 
ensure that our operations are carbon neutral. So even the fact that we're using Zoom to communicate with our national group and our other chapters, I want to see how much is that Zoom costing for the environment? How much is the Wi-Fi costing? Um, and make sure that we're not actually hurting the planet when we're trying to help. Um, and I would say a fourth goal, fourth slash fifth goal to like stretch ideas is um, getting published in more newspapers and just getting the word out there and also potentially having a conference in August in person um, if COVID allows for people from across the nation who are working on Green to Go to meet up with each other. And yeah, those are my goals. And also I had a question for you, Anya. I was curious, what made you interested in like interviewing me about Green to Go? Um, honestly, I didn't know that much about the difference between zero waste and recycling and how zero waste would be implemented worldwide. Like I've heard about um, small businesses doing their own stuff. And I think the idea of using carabiner to hand it in and then get your own reusable takeout container was such an it was such a simple and effective way of implementing zero waste to in your own community and um, getting other people and getting a holistic and uh, wide variety of comprehensive group of people to join in and do it without it making it seem like being environmentally sustainable was a lot of effort because I think the reason that a lot of people stray away from environmentalism or um, you know going vegan or vegetarian or anything like that is because it's a lot easier to not be so especially when um, climate change isn't affecting you as much so upper upper middle class or richer households they're not as systemically affected by climate change as lower income households. And um, so the idea of simple and small actions to make being um, living a more sustainable livelihood seemed so interesting. And um, it seemed like a feasible thing that I think people can do. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, can I ask like another question on top of that? Go for it. <laughs> I'm curious, like what are your like top three takeaways from this call or what are top three things that you think people should take away from this? I think what, okay, so the first thing that what you said struck with me was um, that you're more interested in focusing on comprehensive action rather than individual action because you know that um, a person can only do so much mm -hmm. whereas a group of people can do so much more. If there was that, you, you spoke about um, time, so like, pre-China's Industrial Revolution and post-China's Industrial Revolution. I thought, I, um, I think it's very interesting to see how climate history has shaped human climate relations and how um, it was like the relations between us and how we viewed climate as maybe it's, the environment is so deeply ingrained within our societies and um, from moving towards agricultural settlements and using fur trade in the 1800s and stuff. So I think the idea of climate over time, pre and post industrial revolution is um, very interesting. And the last thing was um, you talked about uh, 
it was the zero waste within um, governments and legislation because it's very interesting to me to see how um, s simply by putting smaller reinforcements like the 10 cents on uh, plastic bags and stuff like that would help. And I know that um, here where uh, I live, there aren't that many regulations surrounding plastic bags, but I know that there are families that they'll bring their own like small bags to the library or to the um, to the grocery store to pick up and carry their own stuff. And I think it's it's interesting to see how individuals and corporations and the government are also interconnected to implement their sustainable goals. Thank you for asking those questions. No worries. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. And it was also really interesting to hear what you found insightful in the conversation. So um, one of actually your second point about like um, just how we can do things together. I'm another book, just another recommendation is the podcast or not the podcast, but the book All We Can Save by Dr. edited by Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, but it is written by a whole collection of environmental activists and indigenous activists. Um, I think it might be pretty interesting to you when it comes to like human climate relations, because it is in a way like a reflection of many environmental activists on the current climate movement. Also includes a lot of like people of color in it, um, which I think is really important. Yeah, yeah especially with ind ind indigenous activism and environmental activism and um, preserving that without foregoing it for the sort of rich white upper-class movement in climate change. So finally, before we go on that note, are there any last statements you would like to share with our audience? Mm, I think in general, if you're listening to this, you clearly care about the climate. And I would say never feel like defeated by the way things are currently going. Um, and if you do feel like angry or anxious, you know, climate anxiety, focus that anger and stress into something productive, like focus it into um, maybe like self-care, like taking a walk, enjoying trees and sunlight outside or clouds if you live in like Seattle or something, but focus it on green to go, join us really. Like I'm really looking for like high schoolers, college students, um, those who have graduated to join us Focus it on something productive and you'll come to actually view maybe climate change and the environment currently with hope and optimism rather than defeat. And I think that is the crux of where we're currently at. It's important to see the climate movement as the beginning of something wondrous, incredible, verdant, beautiful, and even better than our current society rather than the climate movement as something anxiety driven or hopeless or anything else so yeah that's my last parting words i think that's wonderful advice for anyone listening okay thank you for joining us amanda san and this has been icebreaker thank you thank you guys for listening i had so much fun recording with amanda um I hope you enjoyed it and be sure to follow this podcast on Instagram at icebreaker.podcast and check out icebreakerpodcast.card.com. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.